We're going to hear from the Holy Scriptures. Mark chapter 8. Let's get a Bible out. Let's follow it along. And Will Bedford is going to read to us now. Hello, there we go. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I was, um, I was somewhat terrified as uh, God was seemingly moving more and more, because the last time that I was down to preach, and this sort of event happened, James got up to me, and, and he didn't get up and say anything to me, he just got up in front of the church and was like, right, Paddy's prepared this sermon, he's going to come speak to us, but now he's going to do it in five minutes. <laughs> so, I'm glad, for whatever circumstance entails, that I don't have that terror in front of me today. vestry door is wide open. I'm like, right. So this morning, um, I want to do two things. I want to speak into this passage. I want to talk about um, discipleship, what, what Jesus calls us to, but kind of specifically of like, why? And like, what happens when we disciple under Jesus? And, uh, and to do so, I'm also going to be talking a bit of, uh, of my, my own story. I think I'm not saying this to, to try and glorify myself, but rather just being reminded that actually if one of us like, shares our story, it builds faith amongst us in the God who has like, rewritten my story or like this lady that we heard about has like, rewritten their story and knowing that actually that, that same God is at work amongst us. So he can rewrite your story, he can rewrite the stories of those you interact with. So that is um, my hope, my prayer. So what can a man give in return for his soul? What can a man give in return to, to attain this true life? It's kind of the, the question that we're proposed with. But I have to admit, maybe it's a bit jovial, but I am somewhat distracted by current sporting events that like, are going on tonight. And like, I love a good sporting story. So it's like, gosh, the fact that the team that hasn't won 
a title in like 50 years that really like gets me going. That's exciting. So it's like the fact that that a team could win that has never lifted this trophy before. And obviously, I'm talking about the Sean O'Brien Trophy. I'm talking about um, the NBA Finals that are going on. That, you know, you're supposed to cheer then. Everyone's getting excited about the Milwaukee Bucks and the Phoenix Suns. It's like tumbleweed. But it, I say that mainly to like you can get insight into uh, the kind of person I am. I don't worship at the altar of football. I'm sorry. Maybe I'll repent. Maybe I'll stay holy. Who knows? But more so the fact that like actually in church you should you should expect that when someone gets up and like and preaches the gospel to you to be offended, for something within you to be disrupted. And that's exactly what the gospel is. It is an offensive message that is disruptive. So like we, we read from Mark chapter 8, and you see a lot of like parallel, the same accounts throughout the gospel. So in, in, um, happens in, in Matthew 10, kind of and Matthew 16, Jesus says some similar things. I say I love, I kind of find it a bit terrifying, the fact that Jesus says in Matthew 10, he says, do not think that I've come to bring you peace on earth. I've come to bring a sword. He's quite like overt about the fact that it is a disruptive message. It's offensive, it, like, it ruffles our feathers, the fact that the gospel essentially presents the fact that, that we do not have what it takes. We are not enough. The big caveat is the fact that we're not enough apart from Jesus. It's like through Jesus that we are enough, that he takes us to a place where we are enough. The gospel presents Jesus as the one who was enough and makes us enough. Presents Jesus as the one that stands at the proverbial door of our life, knocks at it, and essentially is demanding to take back what he paid for, to take back all the things that have separated us from God, whether that's our sin, our our pain, our disappointment, our brokenness. This is what he has paid for that he wants to take back, take away from us, often with our knuckles white, clenching hold of them so tightly. But ultimately, in return, he wants to give us this true life, eternal life, salvation, whatever words we want to ascribe to it. So as a way of introduction, I guess, I'd say I grew up in a non-Christian home. Um, I'm the youngest of three. I've got two older sisters. So essentially that means, if you know, I've got three mothers. Um, But I say this for the fact that I grew up in a non-Christian home, but I had a brilliant upbringing. I was raised really well. Like, they instilled great morals in me. I knew what right and wrong was. And um, ultimately, that was still not enough. I can also say, like, when, uh, when I was eight years old, my parents divorced, so I moved back to England uh, just with my mother and my sisters. But nonetheless, I, I, I was provided for. I was raised well. And still, that wasn't enough. Without Christ, it is, it's not going to be enough. And so I would say my, my teenage years, being really blunt about it, I had no idea who I was. You could say, like, oh, teenagers are all, like, lost trying to find themselves. Like, I was definitely lost 
trying to find myself chasing all the wrong things up all the wrong trees, trying to put like square pegs in round holes. It didn't work. And the turning point was when I was 20, when I met Jesus. And so like kind of changing gears a bit, handbrake turn, we go back to this passage. So it comes directly after Jesus has this encounter with the disciples and he says like, who do you say I am? So some people are like, you're Elijah. Some people, you're the prophets. Bit of a quiz. And then Peter's like, you're the Messiah. Ding, ding, ding. 10 points to Peter, gold star. So like Peter's like top of the class, gold star. And then straight away, Jesus starts saying, actually, teaches them something new. He says he began teaching them. He hadn't taught them this before. He says the Messiah must, must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed. And then he will raise again. So Peter, like star of the class, is suddenly like, it's got the audacity to start questioning Jesus. He then rebukes him, becomes a bit of like listening to commentating on boxing, like one punch, then a counter punch. So Jesus like counter rebukes Peter, reminds him that actually he's only thinking about his own human interests. He's not thinking about grander things. But also highlights the fact that even Peter, someone so close to Jesus, he was offended by Jesus' message, also disrupted his life. To the point he, he says, like, get behind me, Satan. Stop getting in the way and being a, an obstruction to my mission. I actually remember that like, I am the Messiah sent by God. You are to disciple under me and follow me. Also reminds us just the the basic fact that in so many ways the gospel doesn't make sense. It's all upside down, it's all back to front, it like goes against all our sensibilities and all our logic. I was kind of reminded recently, the very reason that like I'm a Christian today is not because of logic. Like a friend of mine invited me to the Alpha course, it was great, it kind of changed a lot of my preconceived ideas about Christianity. But I'm a Christian today because someone invited me along to church and they prayed for me. And in that moment, God, by the power of the Spirit, met me, affirmed me, kind of started revealing who I really was, who I'd been searching for all that time. And it was by the power of God that I'm a Christian. It's about like the Spirit meeting me in a tangible presence. It's not because like the Alpha Course explained the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Yeah, that's really helpful. I like, I'd love to chat to you over coffee about that. But it's because, like, despite the, just the illogical nature of the gospel, it was by the Spirit who met me. So then in this passage, what we find is, is Jesus, and he calls the crowd towards him. He starts teaching them, and he, I would say he, he reveals a new light by which we are to, to live our lives. It's an invitation to reorientate the direction of our life, reorientate the logic of our life, in which we replace our human values with divine wisdom. Like I keep saying, it's all upside down, that actually triumph comes through death, not through overcoming. That's why Jesus, it was complete foolishness to the Greeks. And here he lays out these three conditions for discipleship. He says you must deny yourself, you must take up your cross, and you must follow, follow me. 
anyone is to come after me, they're to do these three things. You are to deny yourself. It's a, a deliberate refusal to be guided by your own self-interest. Deliberately refusing to be guided by your preferences or your instincts. And often maybe even like your upbringing that you respect so much. Deliberately refusing to. And in turn, surrendering your control to someone else, which is Christ. It's not just ambiguous to anyone, but to Jesus. Secondly, to take up your cross. I said in, in the earlier service, this is such a weighty statement. I feel like we could preach on it all year and still haven't covered it sufficiently. But it's just that discipleship to Jesus is constantly a choice to die. A friend of mine, he recently got married. And he was my best man. But he was like, Paddy, I'm, I'm getting married. Like, what's the... Any advice... It's just like, prepare to die. <laughs> but actually, <laughs> like, but actually that's, that's the analogy in which, if we say this is how, like, this is advice for, for husbands, actually, this is what the Bible describes as how a husband is to love his wife, just in the same way that Christ loved the church. Take up your cross. In a time in history that some people talk about, this is like the age of authenticity. And when you hear so frequently, it's just like, guys, you just need to be authentic to who you really are. That's, what, like, that's, that's the message that you get. Just be authentic to who you really are. If that's what you feel like, yeah, do it. But actually, that's, that's entirely not what the Bible says. Actually, like, as Christians, as disciples to Jesus, it's, it's less about being authentic to who I really am, but rather to be imitators of Christ. Recognizing that I don't want to be like just authentic to who I am on the inside because, I don't know, like my life experiences, that didn't work out too well. But deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Follow Jesus, like, again, abbreviating it down. Consistently letting go of all, of all choice and decision and saying, not my will be done, but yours. I come from a family that, that if we like go out for the day, we usually spend about three hours being just like, oh, what should we do? Should we do this? Should we do that? Should we do this? Should we do this? And just everyone's so indecisive. Even when it comes to like, we get to a restaurant that we've like finally decided on, and it's just like, oh, what should we order? And then it's like, oh, I don't know. Like, well, why don't like, you order that one, I'll order this one, and then we can all try it, because I'm too indecisive to choose. When we follow Jesus and just like let go of, of that choice, it's not because we're indecisive, but it's because we know that actually Jesus has a better way. It's not simply like, oh, no, like, I don't know what to choose, so you choose for me. It's like, actually, no, like, I know that James is going to choose a better restaurant, so I trust him. But I love it. Kind of like the main thing I want to get at. It's how this passage then, then switches. He, he lays out the conditions for it, but then he also describes like why. Like why should we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus? Why? And he simply puts it like, guys, whoever saves his own life, he will lose it. it is, I, granted, I acknowledge the fact that it's confusing. That one second he's saying, if you save your life, you'll lose it, but if you lose your life, you'll save it, so just bear with me. If you save it, if you save your own life, 
if you achieve something by yourself, if you don't accept the help of another, but actually it's just like, no, I can do it myself. When you keep yourself as the, as the primary focus, when you keep these like worldly pursuits as the primary focus, that is when we lose. So I would say as, as a young man, that sounds so pretentious, I don't know. So one, possibly like a trivial example. So I, like I said, I looked up to my sisters, I still do. And uh, I saw my sister go off to university and then she joined the basketball team and then she was captain of the basketball team. And I was just like, oh wow, this, that like, she's really defined herself. She's someone, like she's got status, people look up to her. People want to be like her, I want to be like her. So I spent a lot of time simply going to university so I could play basketball, so I could get the prestige, fame, status, whatever you attribute to it. To it. And this was just representative of, of so many different areas of my life. Where it's like, all right, well, if I can achieve this, then I will have like, figured out who I truly am. I will have saved my own life because I was constantly trying to save my own life. And only in hindsight can I say that there comes a point where we need to stop manufacturing our own salvation in many ways. Granted, that was from a place of like, I didn't know Jesus yet. But I think we can still kind of fall into that same trap, even as Christians, we try and manufacture our own salvation for ourselves. And so looking back on these so many examples, I could just see that my life was slipping away and I wasn't ending up with any like true life that was fulfilling or giving me meaning or purpose, watching me lifting me above my current situation. Rather, I was just ending up with more pain, more disappointment, more wounds and more scars. So Jesus says, if you save your life, you'll lose it. But whoever will lose your life for my sake and for the gospel's and they will save it. Jesus, he sets this contrast between pursuing the self, pursuing the world, and pursuing him. It's when we relinquish control of our lives to Jesus. That's where we find something that was so unexpected, but altogether better. That's an offensive statement in itself to actually claim an objective truth, to actually say Jesus offers you something better than you have now, is like a highly offensive message that we need to pray for the Spirit to, to instill boldness within us. You read through the book of Acts, and so often the Holy Spirit moving is like coming upon the, the early Christians so they could speak with boldness. And sometimes that's as simple as saying, actually, Jesus is better. But he's also very different. I think Ev was referencing it uh, when she was, you were referencing like Isaiah 61. It's just another example of, in the Bible, it reveals this exchange that we're offered. God says here, like, you give me all your crap and muck and, and your life, and I will give you something exponentially better and altogether different. I think, like, excuse me, in many ways, this may well be teaching you to suck eggs. That's like my new favorite phrase currently. But just the fact that true life, 
actually what, what God wants to offer, what he wants to instill in us. It cannot be found in earthly pleasures or in ourselves, but it's found in Jesus. And this true life that, that we celebrate and thank God for, for bestowing to us through Christ, it's more than just happiness and contentment or an enhancement. It's not like, oh, our lives are pretty good. It was like an eight, and we're just going to turn it up to a nine. Or if you know Spinal Tap, we'll turn it up to 11. Cause I... It's not just an enhancement. So like, you can buy watermelon in England, right? Okay, bear with me. There's a lot of food analogies coming up. Like, you can buy watermelon in England, and it's like so big. But um, I grew up in America, in Georgia, in the South, and like watermelons are called the same thing, and they're the same color, and they're red on the inside, and like full of juice, but they taste so much better. Like water, I'm sorry if you grow watermelons, but like watermelons in the UK are a disgrace. <laughs> I'm not saying, and the Bible doesn't say that just like welcoming Jesus into your life and what he gives you in return is just the comparison between like upgrading UK watermelons to American watermelons. It's not just like the same but better. It is like altogether different. Another first analogy that came to my mind was like you can spend your whole life eating sand and cardboard and you can like just about get enough like sustenance from it maybe to like keep you going. And then suddenly take, someone takes you to lunch at the White Line and fake him, and you taste what true food is. I feel like I should get like commission from them for maybe the amount of influx. Just to like make that a watertight analogy that is like the best food around, the White Line. Okay? When you find your life in Jesus, it's not just an enhancement, it's not just like turning the dials up a bit. It's something altogether different. It's, it's better. It's more nourishing. You actually come alive and you're sustained. So I'm not trying to sound like this, like a cliche secondhand car salesman. Because like the Christian message, it isn't just escapism. It's not just trying to like give you a little pill to get through the pain and disappointments and struggles of life. Because I truly believe that like, in Christ we are offered something, we are offered this spirituality which is robust and effective and it actually like, instigates real change. Some people will say um, the first three verses of like, Genesis 12 are some of the most important in the Bible. It's essentially God coming to Abraham and saying, like, I want to make a covenant with you and all your descendants. And there's like a rhetoric within it. It's essentially, in essence, is like, I'm going to bless your family, and through you, like, all the world will be blessed too. This is what's on offer. But as much as we say that, I'm, like, when you become a Christian, it's not all rainbows, marshmallows, and unicorns, right? We talked about this last week, like we still walk through the dirt. We still need to be refreshed daily, often like every hour. Maybe if you like, if you have meetings, you deal with other people. You need like 
constant refreshing. But God's redemptive work is constantly at work. If you want to like know what God is like, as you go to Genesis 3, like humanity sins against God, they separate themselves, and God instantly starts the process of redeeming humanity. It's just that little hint and that, and God, he sowed them coverings. That's, that's another like sermon in itself, just like when the Old Testament hints towards Jesus. I love it, but God is like always in, in the business of redeeming us. So if you lose your life for my name's sake, it is there that you will find it. I say, as objective as it is, I, I didn't grow up with, with a father figure around, and I guess that probably did instill in me, well, I'm saying it probably was a factor, it definitely was a fact, that I had like a deep-rooted fear of fatherhood. So like Sarah and I got married, and um, you're, in a, you're in a Christian context, and everyone's like, oh, so when are you going to start having a baby? And actually in the back of my mind, it wasn't a case of like, oh, we're just going to do other things. We're just going to wait for God's timing. It was just like, no, I'm terrified of having a child. That is like not for me. It was another occasion that it wasn't just like people being like, oh, well, the scriptures say this and like the logic. But it's rather a few people without even me asking them kind of gathered around us and they prayed over us. And it was another miraculous moment where actually I was liberated from that fear of fatherhood. Literally in a moment, I remember driving away and being quite perplexed by the whole situation. But even then what ensued, although I said like, yeah, we, we are all in, like, let's have a baby. Actually what ensued was like years of, of infertility, years of confusion and disappointment between like what I felt like God was, was calling us towards and actually the reality of our life. And even within that, we, we had like multiple miscarriages, one at about three months. And you deal with this, this grief, you deal with pain, but recognizing actually God was, was there, God was present, God was there amidst the pain. It wasn't just a pill to like numb you from it. I remember really vividly having um, these visions of actually when, when I'd be there, processing my grief, it was God sat next to me in the person of Christ, sharing tissues and tears as well. But I share this story not to, to pull at your heartstrings, but rather to say actually what God led us through was, was a process of surrendering our control. This was, this was our, our way of denying ourselves and following Christ and saying, actually, Jesus, we want to elevate you where you are more important than our breakthrough is. In Daniel, you, you read this account of um, before the three are like thrown into the fire. They say, like, we believe that our God is able, but even if he doesn't, we will still worship him. And that's the process. So we found that, that true life by denying ourselves, by leaning into Jesus. 
I just want to read to you um, a short passage from Jeremiah. I says the earlier service, sometimes I wonder, like, I could stand up here for 20 minutes and, and, and share with you, or I could have just read, like, four verses from the Bible, and we'd be great. But we'll do both. So Jeremiah 17 said, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, who is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit does not cease to bear fruit when the heat comes. Please don't hear me that I'm like discounting any, the real life muck that we have to walk through. All the, the pain and disappointment. But rather actually when we, when we lose a life, when we find true life in Christ, even when the heat comes, we do not bear, we do not cease to bear fruit. So our story, God's redemptive work probably, I was going to say culminate, but I don't think it's finished yet. I think he's, he's still got far more to do. So we had our daughter Mary about, it'll be two years in October. I can't do the math. So in many ways I can say actually Mary was, was the fruit of this true life given by God's grace. In many ways, like Mary was part of our redemption that, that God was at work. Also, I have to remind myself that, that Mary wasn't our savior. If you walked in halfway through, you'd think we're like going a bit Catholic. Or, but, like our daughter, Despite the fact that we like contended for her for so long, she wasn't our savior. It was still Jesus. It still is Jesus. Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, they will find it. Just as like a, a closing remark, I've... Um, by coincidence, I've been lucky enough to, to be in multiple places where I've heard the, our Bishop Ruth, Bishop Horsham, preach. And I don't say this to like besmirch her reputation, but uh, she keeps sharing this same little like anecdote in these like three times I've heard her preach. And um, she tells a story of when she was in the last church, her and her husband were giving the local school a tour around the church. So they were telling all these like eight and nine-year-olds about all the stained glass windows and they're telling about the altar and, and the font. They were telling them about Jesus and everything he's done and everything he's won on the cross. They were telling them about the kingdom. And so a young child raises his hand at the end and says, oh, excuse me, how much does it cost to join the kingdom? So Ruth's husband, he just kind of like acknowledges the good question. He's just like, oh, well, it's completely free. But it will cost you everything. 
Whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake and for the Gospels, they will find it. It's absolutely free, but it'll cost you your whole life. And salvation is through Christ. Should we pray? Yeah. Shall we stand? Yeah. Here, Father, we thank you for being exactly who you are that you are full of mercy and grace. And even when we speak about all that we might have to do and is commanded and of us, that it always comes after what you have done. So we thank you for being who you are. We thank you for what you've done. That you sent your son, Jesus, to redeem us. We thank you that ultimately he is enough. And in fact, that he is more than enough. So everything that may separate us from you, God, we release and recognize that, that you paid for it. You paid the bill. It belongs to you, not us. And as dramatic as it sounds, we, we abdicate the throne that we have put ourselves on as king over our own lives. Say, actually, Jesus, you take your rightful place as the one who was, is, and forever will be the king.